Dear listeners, I'm Lauren Conlon, and before you embark on this investigative journey with me, I want to offer a sincere word of my acknowledgement and gratitude. When I, as the host, first set out on this path, I was admittedly very green. I lacked the seasoned expertise and finesse that comes with experience in investigative podcasting and reporting. However, Every story has a beginning and an ending, and this podcast represents the start of my own investigative odyssey. So as you dive into these episodes, you may notice rough edges or moments where my inexperience shines through, but please know that every stumble and misstep has been a crucial part of my learning process, and I've embraced each challenge as an opportunity for growth and improvement. So I want to express my heartfelt appreciation to each and every one of you who was stuck with the story despite my imperfections because Grant's story is important. So your support and patience have been invaluable as I've navigated the complexities of investigative podcasting and your feedback, whether constructive criticism, words of encouragement, or maybe something that wasn't so nice has helped me and helped shape this podcast into what it is today. So without further ado, here is Corruption, What Happened to Grant Solomon. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Corruption, What Happened to Grant Solomon? Big week last week. The True Sunlight team began their coverage on the Solomon story, and it really did give me chills. It was so well done, and it just feels so good that Grant, Gracie, and Angie are finally getting some of the attention that they so deserve and the attention that's really needed to investigate and get to the bottom of this. So I want to announce that there is now a reward for the three men. Yes, it's official. I believe it's $20,000 thanks to our friends at Anglican Watch. And 
someone brought this up via email, and I'm sure many of you could be thinking it as a possibility. I think it crossed my mind a few times, but let's say the three men were illegal. This could be one of the reasons they aren't coming forward. Maybe they don't speak English, or maybe they just don't want to get deported. So yeah, I, I totally hear that. But I do feel like many of us have stopped the 911 call multiple times and really listened in the background, like really, really listened. And we don't hear anything. We don't hear extra voices. I mean, you really don't even hear a lot of cars in the background either, which is crazy because it's right off the highway. So another quote unquote theory was that the men, they were in construction garb and they were moving the cars forward or acting like they were, you know, on duty. So the cars didn't stop to bottleneck or look in the ditch. I hate speculating, but sometimes I can't help it. But anyways, okay. So at the scene of the accident, there was a lot of people there between the paramedics, the police, the fire department, WPI employees, And I've got some semi-big news, which might be more useful should we ever get to the point of a trial. But I did finally get a hold of someone briefly that was actually at the scene of the accident. So this person obviously wanted to remain anonymous, but the first thing I asked them is, did you see the three men? And they said, unfortunately... I wasn't really paying attention to that at all. It was very chaotic. So I did not see any three men. And then I really wanted to know about Aaron Solomon's demeanor at the scene of the accident. Like, did he go to his son at all in the ditch, even while the paramedics were working on him? Did he ever go? Did he ever go to Grant? And he said, He didn't see Aaron ever go to the area where the paramedics were trying to revive him, which is obviously in the ditch. And, you know, this person is not the end-all, be-all. He said, look, maybe he was speaking to police at one point, but I never saw him go down by Grant. So it wasn't just the 911 call that he kept his distance. It was the whole time this poor kid was in distress. I mean, not that... Grant most likely would have wanted his father to be hovering around him. But guys, I just cannot imagine that. I mean, I want to point out that Grant was semi-conscious when the ambulance and the police arrived. His eyes were, were fluttering. He was in and out. And I have a couple friends that work as EMTs. And I asked them, if they were working on someone's kid, in their experience, Did the parent, no matter the age of the child, did they hover around the area while their child was being revived or worked on? Did they hover nervously? Were they crying? I mean, the unanimous answer was yes. And it's just really disturbing to me. Aaron Solomon did not even check to see how his son was doing. And I don't want to hear it. Oh, he was giving them space to revive Grant. He was talking to the police. I I just don't care. If that is my child and most, most parents I know, they're going to be right there hovering. And I also want to make something clear about Grant and the truck. We throw the word trapped around a lot. Grant was trapped under the truck. Well, He wasn't actually trapped in the sense that 
the truck was on top of him. There was, you know, his, his clothes were under the tires and he couldn't get out. No, this person saw that Grant could be easily moved from under the truck if you just carefully were to pick him up. I mean, obviously, the team had to be very careful when pulling him out because he was in such a state, but I just want to make that clear. And for more clarity, here is what the hospital's pulmonary resuscitation form notes said about this. It's titled, Events Leading to Code Blue. And it reads, quote unquote, patient with father about to practice pitching, put car in park, got out and went to get baseball bat out of the back of the truck. Dad thinks the truck was not in park. Truck rolled back on patient, dragging him down a hill and into a ditch. EMS and fire arrived, extricated patient from under truck. EMS intubated patient started an IO to lower left extremity. CPR in progress, end quote. Okay, and the last thing I'm going to say about this, about the accident for today, is that one of the girls from the True Crime and Headlines podcast visited WPI, the scene of the accident. And man, when she actually showed this video, she showed how far Grant had to have been dragged. That was number one. She kind of showed the distance of the 60 feet and and her video just gives you a really good idea of the distance between the rocky ditch and the top of the parking lot. And, you know, number two, it shows exactly how far away Aaron was from Grant the entire time. So essentially how far away he was from his dying son. And it really breaks my heart because watching this video and and seeing how she put this together, it really doesn't make sense to me. And it makes me truly wish that someone had been responsible enough to do an accident reconstruction. So let's pivot to something I forgot to mention about six weeks ago. So I called Marsha Blackburn's office in Tennessee, hoping to leave a message for her. And I actually got in touch with her press secretary, who was very nice. But he told me that Gallatin wasn't really her jurisdiction. This is interesting because she's all about saving kids at the border, but I'll get into that. Um, I tried using my Giuliani uh friendship. Like, oh, he and I used to work together at a radio station in New York City and and he's commented on this case and, you know, he loves you. So I was really just trying to use any type of quote unquote power that I had. I even dropped the fact that Marsha and I were on Newsmax together a few weeks back and I was there to comment on an interview that she had did um, about kids at the border. And, you know, she was talking about how she wanted to protect these kids at the border who were being trafficked and used again and again to get um, adults into the country as as they're posing as as fake families, which is so horrible. So, so horrible. So I kind of said, well, I, I really respected her for that. But I know personally that there are kids in her own state that could desperately use her help. And, you know, he was nice. He said he would pass it on. And, of course, I never did hear back. And I sent him a follow-up email. And this email was something that I sent to a lot of people in the media. 
And um, a few days later, I was talking to somebody on Instagram or, or somewhere, and they, you know, I had just disclosed this. I said, yeah, so I was uh, trying to contact Marsha Blackburn, and they were like, oh, here you go. And they sent me like three different pictures where Marsha was pictured with Steve Berger. And I was like, oh, okay. I get it now, Marsha. Um, and then for those of you unaware, Steve Berger also prayed at Governor Bill Lee's inauguration. So it would appear that they are all friends. <laughs> okay, now moving on to a blogger I want to mention to everybody. So most of you listening are familiar with Shannon Ashley. So she was the blogger on Medium who initially brought this story to a lot of people's attention. She went very in-depth and Grace Chapel actually threatened to sue her. She's very badass. But anyway, I, I wanted to bring to your attention another blogger who goes by the name of St. D or St. Dymphna. Now, it's been said in the Tennessee community that this blogger really had a hand in Steve Berger stepping down a bit faster from literally his own church. He literally started Grace Chapel. Um, And Berger had always claimed this three-part plan in stepping down, which may have been true. But with him being present on January 6th at the Capitol and him being a huge piece in the Freedom for Gracie movement with allegedly not reporting the abuse that Grant had told him about, basically St. D had published this one particular piece in July and Berger resigned in August. So it's been said that this kind of sped up the process. So I want to read to you a section of this piece. And the piece is called, quote, I don't believe you, Mrs. Solomon, on gaslighting, spiritual abuse, and murder in the South, end quote. Now, this piece also sheds some light on the lawmakers that Aaron Solomon associates with. And some of these lawmakers have even been involved in doing absolutely nothing to help Grant, Gracie, or Angie. So I'm going to start mid-article after he depicts Gracie's abuse and Grant's death, and I'm going to jump around a bit, so I hope after everyone can go to the show notes to read this entire article. And I'm reiterating that it was written in July of 2021. Quote, Betrayal of Trust. Grace Chapel was recently pastored by a man named Steve Berger, who on January 17th announced that he was resigning as part of a three-year plan of stepping down. He insists that this had nothing to do with his attendance of the January 6th Capitol riots and ensuing Change.org petition for him to resign. In the aforementioned cease and desist, Grace Chapel also insisted that Steve Berger and Steve Berger Ministries are entirely separate entities, and legally speaking, they probably are. However, as the founding pastor of Grace Chapel and a partner in the founding of Grace Christian Academy, it is clear that the beliefs and teachings of Steve Berger have greatly influenced both of these institutions. This triune, legally distinct construct of school, church, and pastor all claim to not have known anything about any abuse, which evidence would seem to contradict. 
Gracie's mother has released emails and text messages that she exchanged with GCA and other sources that testified on the Instagram page concurred that sexualized violence and abuse was at best ignored by the private school and at worst encouraged. One source claims that headmaster Robbie Mason even bragged about meeting his wife Dabney when he was her basketball coach and she was 15 years old. What we can say for certain, however, is that they never reported any abuse, even though Tennessee is a mandatory reporter state. They never protected Gracie or Grant from any abuse. And during one incident in 2018, headmaster Robbie Mason even allegedly forced Gracie into her father's car despite her begging and pleading with him. Now that the allegations are public, Grace Chapel is denying any mishandlings of the case, while Grace Christian Academy has not released a public statement, and Steve Berger Ministries is demonizing survivors of assault. Grace Christian Academy does, however, send out aggressively threatening letters to anyone who speaks out about this matter publicly. End quote. I'm going to stop for a second there, because that whole thing with Robbie Mason... Uh, it was reported that he said to Gracie, allegedly, hey, Gracie, that's old news that your dad raped you, essentially. Get in the car. Yeah. Anyway, I will continue. (laughs) Quote, prominent guests at Grace Chapel include the power couple of Jack Johnson, a Republican state senator, and his wife, Deanna Bell Johnson, who is a judge. She's also the judge who signed the order forbidding Angie Solomon from seeking any legal redress for the abuse she and her family have suffered. Coincidentally, Judge Johnson has made a habit of troubling rulings against victims of abuse and assault, as can be seen in how she treated the victim in the Brentwood Academy case. In August of 2017, a sixth grade student was sexually assaulted and raped by several older pupils in the locker room at Brentwood Academy, and after the assault dismissed and belittled by the headmaster of the school, Curtis Masters. Judge Johnson ruled that the case had no merit and dismissed it with prejudice. According to the article in The Tennessean, Judge Johnson even faced accusations of plagiarism because her ruling seemed to have been copy from the defense's brief. Not to be outdone by his wife, Senator Johnson allegedly helped cover up the case of a three-year-old child who had been sexually assaulted by a teenage Sunday school teacher at Fellowship Bible Church Daycare in Brentwood. Although he does not worship at Grace Chapel, Judge Philip E. Smith has been criticized for similar attitudes as his colleagues. He went viral a few years ago for an outburst of rage from the bench in which he screamed at female attorney Cynthia Cheatham. Later, Judge Smith neither explained nor apologized for the incident, stating to Fox 17 that, I stand by what I said. It was this same Judge Smith who not only excluded the testimonies of three medical professionals, all of which were in Angie's favor. He also dismissed her claims that Aaron had tried to strangle her, responding, I don't believe you. I do believe that you tried to commit suicide. Additionally, several sources have confirmed that Judge Smith is rather friendly with Aaron Solomon's legal representation, Scott Parsley. 
Now, both of these judges have sworn and signed oaths of office, which state that they should rule fairly and impartially. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Whether that is what they're doing currently, however, is unclear. The church is not only Aaron's source of supporters, though. There's his best friend, fellow Grace Chapel attendee and personal friend Steve Berger, and viral sensation in his own right, Sam Johnson, who garnered much media attention when he was filmed going out of his way to attack and demean a boy wearing a dress to his high school prom. And switching gears back to Angie and the church... While the extent of this abuse is uncertain, it's fair to assume that Angie was raised from birth to adhere to a fundamentalist image of biblical womanhood, to be meek, humble, obedient, and to submit herself unto her husband as the church submits herself unto Christ. Angie's own father, himself a lifelong evangelical fundamentalist, told his daughter, who was scared for her life and that of his grandchildren, that he would pay for a lawyer to lift the restraining order against Aaron, but not one to help her get a divorce. Dr. Murphy, who treated Angie in the hospital after Aaron allegedly tried to strangle her, notes in his report that patients' parents also seem to be unreliable sources of information. Grace Chapel and its legally distinct founder, Steve Berger, preach that, quote unquote, the biblical definition of and instructions pertaining to sexual ethics in all circumstances and in the biblical definition of marriage as being between one man and one woman for one lifetime, end quote. Interpretation of the Bible is a contentious issue, and that, quote, could mean anything from condemning adultery to disallowing divorce to legitimizing spousal abuse and marital rape. On which end of the spectrum the trinity of Burger, Grace Chapel, and Grace Christian Academy fall becomes clear when you listen to the sermon Burger has tried to scrub from the internet, his 2018 sermon about Christine Blasey Ford and the hearings. In it, he alludes to what's called the two-witness rule, dictating that any allegation of abuse needs to be substantiated by at least two witnesses. This same rule has been controversially discussed in other church-related sexual abuse cases, like Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witnesses, since it allows abusers within the church to continue victimizing children as long as there are not two witnesses. 
Berger also warns that there can be no pity. Don't have pity on the false accuser. Don't allow emotional testimony to supersede the facts of the case. Don't pity them for for the degree of self-inflicted judgment. Statistics show that false accusations are exceedingly rare. Between 2 and 5% of sexual assault allegations are fictitious. But as Gracie's attorney, Alex Little, points out, sexual abuse is one of the hardest crimes to detect, prove, and prosecute, since usually there aren't any witnesses. Sexual abuse and assault are by their very nature private crimes, not typically the kind of stranger danger assaults children were warned about in past decades. It follows then that what Pastor Berger is really saying here is, don't have pity with victims. More recently, Pastor Steve has streamed a series of sermons entitled Exposing the Enemy, Securing Our Victory to his congregation. In it, as well as the accompanying notes that worshipers can receive as a newsletter, he states emphatically that it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who persecute you. One can only wonder whom this series aims, but it's released on the 7th of June, 2021, less than a month after Gracie published her YouTube video. That might give the reader a hint. In the sermons, Berger also directs his congregants to employ so-called prayers, most commonly understood to function akin to a curse. While he does not mention Gracie or her mother by name, he does say that it is just pray prayers against those who have mocked the church, accused falsely, sown divisiveness, and threatened the unity of his congregation. And from Mr. Berger's point of view, that may well be what he thinks Gracie and her mother did. In a video posted to the Freedom for Gracie Instagram, Gracie can be seen hinting at a smile as she thanks those who have helped spread her message. In the same video, she states that while things are still hard for her, she feels hopeful and respected for the first time, and she wants to become an advocate when she's older, end quote. I found that to be so powerful. And again, I did not even read you the whole thing. So I encourage everybody to go back to the show notes and read the entire article and go to St. Dymphna's page on Medium and you'll see a few more articles about this case that are equally as informative. And the last thing I want to say about this article is around the time that it was written, Gracie Solomon was living under the care of a guardian, not Angie and and not Aaron. So the court had deemed Angie crazy and they actually uh, substantiated Gracie's claims of abuse towards her father at one point, and she was granted a no contact order. But this whole situation just broke my heart when I heard that she had to live with a guardian after her brother's death. I mean, Angie and Gracie, like they were all each other had. So I, I was very upset upon hearing about this. And I have reached out to Gracie's guardian for an interview. So I'm hoping we can get that done soon. Fingers crossed. And lastly for today, I have a testimony of a former GCA student that made me absolutely so sad. It was hard for me to, to get through reading it. It was, it was that troubling. And I've spoken about the culture of GCA in the past, and you heard everything that I just read via St. D. 
And I think it's important that everybody understands that when examining this case. So the disclaimer is this is one student's experience. I've had a few students on this podcast who have echoed similar experiences, but that's not everyone. But I do feel like it's important for everyone to hear this. I moved to Tennessee from Southern California when I was just nine years old, and Grace Chapel quickly became our home church. My mother and I both volunteered on a weekly basis. We were involved in several home fellowship groups, and we even began working on the child care team together for various meetings that would happen throughout the week, worship practice, staff meetings, vacation Bible school, etc. All this to say, I grew up in Grace Chapel. It was a huge part of my world, and I spent most of my days there, six out of seven days a week to be exact. And then I began attending Grace Christian Academy in my eighth grade year. As I got older, I would say around middle school age, and especially once I started at GCA, I grasped very quickly the hierarchy of Grace Chapel and GCA and began feeling like something was very wrong. To put it in perspective, Grace Chapel is a megachurch in the middle of Franklin, Tennessee. It's a church that boasts the attendance of country music singers, actors, politicians, and upper-middle-class families of Williamson County, many of whom were influential in their own right. If you wanted to fit in and be part of the quote-unquote inner circle, you needed to be somebody or know somebody. And if you weren't lucky enough to be one of those two, you were an other. You were treated with just enough decency that the inner circle could go to sleep at night and feel like good Christians, but who would be the first to talk down to you, talk about you, and cast you out if you made waves? If you were an other, you had to fall in line or get out. During my time at GCA specifically, I had a very difficult and tumultuous time. I experienced intense bullying, sexual harassment from students and teachers, and discrimination and scaremongering in regards to my sexuality. I witnessed and experienced grooming by a Bible teacher. I witnessed a cult-like dance group infiltrate the school for new recruits. I witnessed, experienced, and was disclosed to several counts of sexual assault and harassment. But I was another. So when I tried to speak out, I was a liar. When I tried to help friends, I was nosy. When I asked for help outside of getting on my knees, I wasn't a good Christian. GCA was a culture of God first, man second, and woman last. It was taught and reinforced to us girls in particular that our purpose was to remain modest, pure, and clean for our future husbands to whom we would be expected to fall in line for and obey at all costs because we are accountable to our husbands and they are accountable to God. We had intermittent dress code checks in which the girls would be expected to stand in front of the class and have our skirts measured against the size of a King James Bible. And if they didn't meet the requirement, we were given a dress code violation and possible detention. Sometimes girls were even asked to put sweatpants under their skirts and finish the school day dressed that way. 
I myself can recall an occasion where my skirt was measured and the fabric did not quite brush against the bottom pages of the Bible and so was made to stand in front of my peers and turn in a circle while all the boys were asked if the amount of skin I was showing was distracting to them. That's all we were, a distraction, a stumbling block of promiscuity sexualized as children Young women who had it ingrained in them that they were nothing more than an object for the fulfillment of man. And the boys knew this, and they preyed on it. In 10th grade, I had a group of five young men from the football team follow me out to my car, one of which grabbed his penis through his sweatpants and asked me if I wanted to touch it. They encircled me, and when I rightly so told them to fuck off and managed to get in my car safely, they proceeded to jump on my car, make crude gestures at me through the window, and shouted at me, calling me a prude and a scared little bitch, while I sat trembling in my car, frozen in fear. Because that's how it works. If you don't give them what they want, you're cold, you're prudish, and if you do, you're a whore. So when I disclosed what happened to one of my teachers, who also happened to be one of the sports coaches at the time, I was told I must have misunderstood. When I asked how I could have misunderstood someone asking me to touch their penis, I was asked what I did to give the boys the impression that I would want to. The boys were never disciplined, never even spoken to, to my knowledge. I never disclosed to another teacher at GCA about what I saw or what I experienced again. It wasn't my first experience of this nature, and it was far from the last. I wish I could say it was only the students we had to worry about. I wish I could say I never experienced a teacher, a supposed man of God, touch my legs during class, play with my hair as he walked past. I wish I could say that a teacher didn't keep me after class one day, back me into the wall, hands on either side of my head, and ask me if I was afraid. I wish I could say he didn't do it to others. I wish I could say when people spoke up, he was dismissed immediately. I wished I could say all that, but it would be a lie. By the time I reached my senior year at GCA, I did not attend Grace Chapel on a regular basis. I did not try to involve myself with students or extracurriculars. I did not speak up when things got bad. Not when the bullying was so intense, I was afraid to walk to my next class. Not when a teacher got me to her house under false pretenses and interrogated me about my sexuality, told me I was condemning myself to hell for who I love. Not when a boy in my class urged me to kill myself and just get it over with. I said nothing. I was a shell. I had no idea who I was or what I wanted. I had been an other for 10 years of my life, staying quiet, being amicable, and not making waves. GCA and Grace Chapel took the person I was and shattered me into a million pieces and then asked me why I was so broken and couldn't understand why I didn't trust God and why I wasn't comfortable around my church family. There are so many parts to this story. There are so many more stories. I am just a drop in the ocean. And for a long time, my heart broke more for others who have shared their stories with me because for so long, I was told that I was the problem. I believed it, the stumbling block, the temptress, 
the prude, the slut, the liar, the dyke, the other. But I am not those things. We are not the things they labeled us with. We don't have to stay in the box that they tried to shove us into. I want anyone else who has had a similar experience to feel free and safe to share it with someone, anyone, with me, with family, with friends, or with the world. It has taken a long time to heal, and I hope sharing my story and my experience will give even just one person the support they need to do the same. End quote. I almost cried while reading that. That absolutely brings me to tears. And I just, I commend this person for coming out and sharing her story because it's just so helpful to a lot of people that have experienced the same thing at GCA and at Grace Chapel. And you know, I have disclaimers all over the show. This is one person's experience. It might not be everybody's, but it's just important that everybody listening understands what Gracie, Angie, and Grant were dealing with. Okay. I want to thank everyone again for listening. If you have any tips or any information, feel free to email me lauren at magicshack.com, or you can DM me on Instagram at lauren underscore interviews or on Twitter at Conlin underscore Lauren. I'll be back next week with another episode of corruption. What happened to Grant Solomon? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.